Welcome to You Relevant, the podcast that is all about helping you find relevance in the economy of now. My name is Mike Wheeler, and I'm an online instructor, entrepreneur, and cloud career coach. I gravitate towards tools and tech that enable you to create something new, advance your career, and find the intersection between attainable and essential. All right, so today we're joined by Julian Joseph. I'm so excited to meet Julian. Uh, discovered him online as a Salesforce QA engineer. And so Julian, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks awesome. So if I understand correctly, you're joining us from San Diego, California, and I wanted to talk to you specifically because there's been a lot of interviews I've done with quote unquote success stories of some of my students, but I've not really had a chance to talk to someone that's an actual employee of Salesforce and so, and also someone that's in the quality assurance space as well. So I think there's a lot of topics we can talk about today. So I think to start off with, if you could share what you did professionally before you discovered Salesforce. Yeah. So professionally, before I discovered Salesforce was actually, I'd say a myriad of things. Um, so graduating out of college, I actually graduated with an Asian American studies degree, which is definitely not the typical tech degree. Um, I actually started off in electrical engineering, but I flunked out of that, switched to Asian American studies and kind of went from there. Um, but during college, I did a lot of tech support, uh, kind of the genius bar, I'd say style jobs, working on Apple laptops and things like that. And I think that's what really got technology kind of going in my mind as a career path, but it was more in the back of my mind as I was pursuing a few other avenues. And so right out of college, I actually taught English in Korea um, for about half a year. And then I actually volunteered with a nonprofit that works with North Korean refugees specifically. And that nonprofit called Liberty North Korea, they actually use Salesforce. And so that's kind of where I made that pivot back, I'd say, into technology. At the time, it was really just out of love for um, that, that area of work, of working with North Koreans, that I just wanted to do something for that cause. And so I knew I, a little bit of technology knowledge starting off and things like doing Google Analytics and some marketing automation, things like that. Um, but thankfully, the VP, um, Justin Wheeler of the nonprofit at the time, who actually went on to start his own tech company, he was a pretty forward thinker. And he encouraged me very strongly to look at Salesforce and to look at this as a possible career path. And so I was just an intern at the time, but kind of doing all these smaller technology products and um, he actually asked me to, over a winter break, he asked me if I could learn Salesforce and bring it back to the company. And I told him, sure. Yeah, I just said yes right away, even though I had no idea what that entailed. At the time, it was actually before Trailhead was out um, or was a really marketed product, or maybe it was just starting at that time. And so I remember reading a lot of help articles, um, not a lot of images and not a lot of um, ways to actually test out Salesforce, or so I thought. I didn't know I could just go create a developer account and start messing around with it there. Um, but yeah, I learned that over um, a winter break as best I could. Thankfully, there were some consultants that were working with that nonprofit at the time to help me out. Um, but that's really what got me started, I'd say, on that Salesforce path. All right. So you mentioned, uh, what, what was that person's name? Justin Wheeler? Justin Wheeler. Okay. Yeah, so he, he runs a, he has his own... 
nonprofit focused tech startup called Fundraise. They do donation software. Okay. Okay. But yeah. So yeah, it sounds like you really started out in the philanthropy space and you really have remained in there because you're with salesforce.org. Could you talk about it and explain to people if they don't know what the difference between those two arms are as far as nonprofit versus profit, just at a very high level? Sure, yeah. So salesforce.org, I apologize if I don't have the full history exactly right, as best I, sure. as best I remember, but yeah, salesforce.org, is actually effectively the technology or product arm um, of the Salesforce Foundation, or it used to be until those products were acquired by Salesforce.com. Um, but essentially, the mission of that separate of, of Salesforce.org was to use Salesforce technology to serve the nonprofit and education community and those other communities that kind of surround it. And so what that looks like is software that is installed on top of Salesforce using managed packages. Um, it started off as pretty much one main package, MPSP, but it has now blossomed into quite a few, including other verticals that go more towards education like EDA. And also that's paired with Salesforce's giving away of their software and the 1% model and actually 10 free licenses given to nonprofits. So giving away Salesforce itself, the core software, but also adding onto it products that are specific to the nonprofit space. That's specifically where the .org product team comes in. The team that I'm on is developing those products that augment Salesforce to be really geared towards the, that customer base um, and best utilizing those 10 free licenses and other either free or reduced price software that Salesforce is giving away. Okay. Yeah, that, that's something that I've admired about Salesforce from the moment I heard about their, I guess it's the 111 model as far as 1% of revenues and even encouraging employees to donate some of their time towards a cause that they care about. And I've seen individuals and people that I know that are involved in nonprofits get those 10 licenses and roll that out. And I don't know of any other tech company that just gives their software away like that for nonprofits. And so you started off on the, I guess, the nonprofit side as far as from a customer perspective, but now today you're actually an employee of salesforce.org. How was that journey or how did that play out specifically? Yeah, so starting again from that nonprofit. Um, so I mentioned I interned there and I really got focused in onto Salesforce as a career, um, learned a few skills like working with demand tools, the time to do like large data uploads and things like that. And a lot of trial and error. Um, I think that was like a, a little bit of trial by fire, which helped me get really acquainted with um, the software itself and kind of doing some ELT, bigger ETL, excuse me, um, bigger data moves and things like that. Um, but after that nonprofit, uh, I actually started, of course, like looking at what is going to be the next thing for me was the next career choice for me. And I actually ended up staying within the industry. And so I actually moved to a company called Classy. And so that nonprofit was actually using the software, Classy software, which is donation software, and also using their integration. So they have this front-end donation platform and also a Salesforce integration. And so what that means is Classy is an ISV, so a partner of Salesforce, developing Salesforce software that they can use to integrate with their own software. And so taking now this 
tech support background I had from college and then this love for nonprofits and this industry. To Classy, I started off on their tech support team being their first dedicated tech support person for the Salesforce product. And there, again, I'd say a little bit more trial by fire, working with just a lot of admins on whatever issues were coming up, a lot of permissions issues, I would say, from <laughs> what I remember. And then duplicate data, if there was some maybe bug in the integration or maybe, um, unfortunately, too often, poor setups or less than ideal setups and the Salesforce org side and kind of seeing what would it be like if we actually kind of took this to the next higher level of preventing preventing these duplicates or preventing these bugs or these issues from getting to our clients. And so for me, I kind of looked at that in terms of my career. And so transition, I looked at targeting, moving into, at the time I was thinking about maybe product management um, or something similar, but I ended up landing in quality engineering. And I didn't even know what the term quality engineering was when I started at Classy. I remember asking some other people, what is this, what does a quality engineer even do? But I basically learned that it's somebody who tests the software and make sure that those bugs are not getting to your clients. Um, and I learned I was effectively doing that as somebody in support in a lot of ways, because I would either test it on my own before I gave it to, gave somebody maybe an upgraded version of our software that's supposed to fix the bug. Um, or I'd find that the bug would make it out into the wild and then I'd be hearing about it on the support side. And so I wanted to kind of go up that chain to prevent those from even coming out. And so I made the case for moving from that tech support role to quality engineer role. This is still within Classy um, as a partner. Um, and there, another set of learning about like what a quality engineer does on a day-to-day, -day, learning things like regression testing or UAT testing and things like that, uh, manual versus automation testing. I'm just getting really acquainted it, acquainted with these different terms, but also in a way that was still within the Salesforce ecosystem. And so looking at like, what do these terms mean within Salesforce? And I saw a lot of ways that they line up very well, but then a lot of other challenges that are pretty unique to Salesforce. Not being able to spin up a local environment is probably one of the biggest differences between a typical tester's job and working within Salesforce. And so really going down this path of, I'd say looking at things like Salesforce DX mm -hmm. and some other open source tools, Chemo CI, something we actually make it .org, going down that rabbit hole. And eventually that led me to salesforce.org, seeing that they were doing a lot of the thought leadership in the space of creating good tools for those developing on top of Salesforce. Um, so I'm not sure of the exact numbers, but as far as I know, MPSP, the nonprofit success pack developed by salesforce.org, I believe it is the largest in terms of customer base for a managed package in Salesforce. And so, and then a lot of the other products are right up there in terms of their complexity and dependencies of having extensions on top of these products. And so basically .org had to do a lot to make this process efficient. And also, of course, make sure that they are testing their products extremely well. So similarly, on that DevOps side, I was seeing a lot of thought leadership. I was also noticing it on the quality side of how do we test this at scale? And yeah, that's where I really got interested in .org. Um, thankfully, I applied and um, found a lot of connections with the director at the time. 
and yeah, just found a, a new home here within salesforce.org. But then at the same time, that became salesforce.com as a whole, because that was right, right when they were actually being acquired. Irrelevant is sponsored by MikeWheelerMediaLive.com. If you are studying for your first Salesforce certification, I want to let you know about my live training option. I run a live Salesforce administrator training class three to four times a year. This is a live class that runs for nine weeks. And in this live setting, I cover the latest updates from Salesforce, and I'm also able to answer your questions live. So if you'd like to learn in a live group setting with greater interactivity, then go to MikeWheelerMediaLive.com. There you'll find schedule and pricing information and FAQ, and you can also register. Just go to MikeWheelerMediaLive.com for details. Quality in and of itself is kind of often overlooked. And the roles that get the most, I guess, attention from my students would be administrator, developer, or architect. The quality is so important because it's more preventative in nature. And you're talking about how trying to get out in front of some of those potential problems, because that will help make the whatever product it is more, more easily to sell or market or to service if there's less bugs, better user experience as well. And so the process of actually, um, I think there's a lot of questions that I get from students like, how do I get hired by Salesforce? Now, I understand on the nonprofit side, but what are some good traits to have? What, are, what is Salesforce looking for in their employees and even what certifications for specifically your path or other paths that you may have uh, run across as well? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I love everything you're saying about quality. <laughs> yeah. I'll just say on, on that note, I mean, I really like to think of being a quality engineer as being I like to call it anti-bias engineer, mm -hmm. because really a lot of times what we're testing or working against is just assumptions that maybe a developer has made, a product manager, an admin might've made, or we ourselves are making about what is working in the way it's supposed to work, whether or not it's accessible, things like that. And so I think having that quality engineer mindset and having that at your company um, or just having it within your role and bringing it kind of into your role, whatever role you're doing, I think it's really important because that's, yeah, like you said, that's going to get ahead of a lot of these issues that are, that are going to creep up with your users or going to creep up with you yourself trying to fix something down the line because you made, you know, some assumption that this wouldn't be used this way. Um, but yeah, in terms of what are those skills to actually work at a company like Salesforce? Um, so there's, Salesforce is huge. It's, I, last I heard, I think we're somewhere around 50,000 plus employees, uh, maybe even much larger than that with the acquisition of Slack. But yeah, very large organization. So there are just so many roles. And I knew that coming in, but now being at Salesforce, it's taken on a whole new life of its own. Because just when you think about things, like when you think about being a Salesforce admin or Salesforce developer, really, that's probably one sliver, a, a large sliver, but just one sliver of the different skill sets that you could have if you wanted to work at Salesforce. Just like any other company, there's gonna be marketing, sales, um, maybe developer advocacy, um, so many just different roles. I mean, HR, um, just more IT related jobs. And so mm -hmm. there, there's a lot that you could be skilling up. And so I'd say things like Salesforce certifications, while they can definitely help for certain kinds of roles, and it's just a good, 
way to show that you care about the product and you care about the community. I'd say it's definitely emphasized in certain ones and maybe not as important in others. Um, something that I think is really interesting about my career path that I would not necessarily recommend for any others is that I actually do not have any Salesforce certifications. Um, and so I've kind of been able to make these, I guess, you could say career leaps or career transitions without having that in my resume. That being said, I think it was with a lot of, and a lot, you could say luck or just a lot of faith maybe in the managers I was working with that I had the skills and a lot of work in me showing that skill set in a different way. Um, but to that end, I mean, anybody who knows me will know that I'm, I definitely advocate for getting that training, getting certified, going down that path. I think it's still, it's, it's an important step and you shouldn't just rely on luck alone or rely on faith alone to get you there. Right. Um, but yeah, in terms of maybe a little bit more specifically where, where those degrees and certifications and where that kind of training, maybe making that admin or developer transition to Salesforce from what I've seen, um, definitely anything that is customer facing. And so our CSG department, which is basically just our customer service and customer support department, anybody who's going to be implementing or working with customers, definitely those roles, it's going to help a lot to have those certifications and go through that path. Um, obviously, if you're developing on top of Salesforce, the platform like at.org, a lot of our developers are have their first or second or additional um, developer certifications, or some, I know some several individuals who are architect, different kinds of architects and have those certifications as well. Um, definitely within the .org kind of sphere, that's, since we are operating in many ways like an ISV, creating managed packages, we need a lot of that Salesforce specific talent. Um, but if you were gonna be a developer, let's say on Salesforce, the platform itself, creating the platform, um, a lot of that is gonna be, let's say Java based. And so it's not so much Salesforce knowledge that you need, especially it's maybe more just general programming knowledge that you're gonna be bringing to the table. And that's, that might even be most of the developer jobs at Salesforce are more like that. They're creating the Salesforce as a pro they're creating Salesforce as a product, not as a consumer. And so they need a somewhat different skill set. Okay, excellent. So yeah, I, I love hearing your story because um, there's a lot of people out there saying, oh, you got to have X number of certifications before you even go for a job interview. Here you are working for the mothership with zero certs. And I love that. And that might be surprising hearing that come out of my mouth because I'm known as a teacher online that teaches certification courses, but I've actually been trying to do more and more of encouraging people to actually go for jobs and go for interviews, even before they're certified. And just the variety there that you speak of as far as the, the different paths, the different options, uh, there's so much opportunity out there. And it's just a matter of kind of following your interests, which you definitely have done and what you're passionate about, which is the philanthropy side as well. And you found a great home there as well. So it's all very inspiring and refreshing and, and really interesting because I think that sometimes people can get discouraged hearing, oh, you've got to have five or 10 certifications before you even think about you know, going for a job. And so then there's people like you that are going, oh yeah, well, I'm just going to go for it and uh, acquire those skills and, and here you are. So, um, so what are some of the, from a quality assurance perspective inside of salesforce.org, and you mentioned as well, 
you operate much like an ISV. That's a, a an independent software vendor, right? ISV independent. Yep. Uh, for some reason, that doesn't sound Sounds right. right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, I just say ISV. So <laughs> right, right. I think that's fine. But um, what are some of the challenges in working? at such a scale that Salesforce is, and you mentioned that probably the largest install base is the uh, nonprofit success pack. Is that what you said earlier? The NPSP? Correct. Yeah. So I guess yeah. in my mind, there's a lot of challenges because of the enormity, the scale, the number of users, the number of orgs. And what I've been fascinated with in just watching Salesforce and have been impressed with from the moment I discovered it, is how they have their three annual releases and typically everything just keeps working, you know? What level of effort goes into that backwards compatibility so that things don't blow up every three to four months uh, from a quality perspective? Yeah, yeah, so there's, there's a lot to that. And when it comes to, again, like that kind of like the core, the platform application itself of Salesforce, that's a whole world that I would like to learn a lot about. And actually, I'm just kind of thinking there's some great podcasts. There's one with a quality engineer um, on the D Salesforce developer podcast. I definitely recommend checking out. It talks about hammer testing. And that's a lot of, I know the hammer testing is a tool, which is basically just running all of the tests, all of the unit tests that have been developed by, I think, all of our customers against every major release. That's a big reason why Salesforce is a core product is able to be able to go through these major releases and not have major issues or at least reduce a lot of the issues that we're having. Um, when it comes to developing yeah, as an ISV more specifically, like if I was gonna summarize it into one word, it would probably be just Cumulus CI. <laughs> and so that's that tool that I was talking about. It's actually an open source tool developed by Jason Lance and the release engineering team at salesforce.org. Um, but essentially, it was a tool, as I understand it, built out of necessity. Um, and again, there's some great podcasts he's done, I think, on the developer podcast. Um, I think Salesforce Way podcast. I've hear, heard him kind of go around and do some of these. So that's a great way to learn about that tool more in depth. But essentially, it was built out of necessity, understanding that we were just building at a scale that even for ISVs was unheard of or extremely rare. And so we needed to be able to push out multiple packages. MPSB itself is actually a set of, I think, six or seven packages, just that one product. And then on top of that, there are additional dependencies of other extension packages. And so just that whole model of how do we develop all of these different layers and how do we also test at scale, um, it required a, a more custom solution. And so that's what Cumulus CI has enabled. Um, but in terms of what that looks like from a quality perspective, effectively, it means with a tool like this, whenever a developer is doing a change, or it could even be a QE who's doing a change from time to time, um, or even a, a technical doc writer who's doing a change to like, let's say, a, just to the name of a field in, a, in one of our packages. Any changes like that, whenever they are committed or whenever they are saved, they're running against all the tests that us as QEs have already developed. And so it allows us to do things like take a Salesforce environment and spin it up and have it run all the unit tests, of course, but also additional UI-based tests. Um, we specifically use a, a framework called Robot Framework, 
Um, it's, it's nice because it's very human readable. You can just say click button and write out the name of the button or go to this page, go to this Salesforce page, um, go to this community page, things like that. And it'll do all that automation for us. And so it's allowed us on the manual and so manual slash exploratory or automation QE side to create our tests at scale and then have them run at scale with the with some of these tools so that we know that they're not going to be breaking whenever a developer is doing a change. Um, I, this is all stuff that was, maybe it's familiar to you, but for me, it was definitely all new um, when I was coming into quality engineering. I was like, how, how does this testing actually work? Okay, there's the run through like the user steps of create this opportunity, make sure this child custom object is created and make sure I can delete it. Let's say, okay, I know what that kind of means manually, but what is it, what really happens at a software co uh, company when you're doing testing at scale? And the next level of that is basically, how do I do this all automated? How do I just create a program that's basically doing these same steps that I'm doing manually, but do them in an automated way? And so once you kind of learn that, that's taking a step over into what we call automation engineering. Um, and then from there, the next kind of, I would say interface is that working with somebody like your DevOps team or your release engineering team, working at that level to how do we get these tests that I've automated? How do we make sure that they're always running as many times as they can whenever there's a change or as many times as they're needed, I should say, whenever there is a change. And so getting all that up and running at scale um, yeah, it's, it was challenging and we couldn't have done it without our release engineering team, but now that it is working, we're able to at scale, make sure that there isn't going to be a new bug or that if there is a bug, it's going to be as small a bug as possible because every time we're putting out a change for, let's say MPSP or any of our other products, we're running all these tests. Um, we are still doing a lot of manual tests as well, um, but especially those automated tests are what are preventing um, those, those issues from happening without having to take up too much of our time. Irrelevant is sponsored by MyQuillerMediaPlus.com. You'll find all of my courses on my platform, so just go to MyQuillerMediaPlus.com. You'll also find exclusive content there, such as my brand new Salesforce Certified Administrator course for 2021. It's bigger and better than ever and available nowhere else. Simply go to MyQuillerMediaPlus.com and sign up for a seven-day free trial today. You'll find dozens of courses and hundreds of hours of in-depth video training content. Also, be sure to download our mobile apps for iOS and Android. Just search for MyQuiller Media Plus on your favorite app store and you'll find us there too. Right. So now that you have a lot of that in place, you, you probably as a group are looking at new innovations and ways of even scaling upward from there. Um, do you use artificial intelligence at all as far as discovering patterns or certain types of changes that tend to lead to bugs? Or is, is that anything uh, in your area as far as starting to use artificial intelligence or not? That's a great question. Yeah, that, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how that could help. And I would love to, you know, <laughs> anybody out there who wants to hit me up, I'd love to hear more about ways that could be implemented. I don't think we've quite gotten to that point yep. um, of using artificial intelligence, but we do use a lot of tools that create 
I feel like a step down from that is using tools that actually create fake data mm -hmm. and data that you can't quite predict what it's necessarily going to be, but it's going to be generated somewhat at random and then running your tests in that way. And so using some tools um, like one called Snow Fakery, it's actually a Python tool created by Paul Prescott on a release engineering team. We're able to mass generate a bunch of data that's using some faking algorithms to do things like generate fake names, fake oh, email wow. addresses. Um, yeah, really whatever you can think of about a person or about companies, fake companies, things like that, fake geolocations. Yep. Using that to generate fake data. And I think we're kind of at the cusp of how can we use that with our tests in an intelligent way. It's, it's actually pretty tricky because especially if you're used to saying everything is gonna be tested based on like one person's name. I have to think about how do I test this based on anybody's name that has like these attributes or something like that. But in reality, that's getting one step closer to, to reality, because if you're, you're not going to know what somebody's, what data somebody's inputting in a record, most of the time, it's going to be whatever that salesperson or whatever that community user, whatever they're going to be inputting, which you can't necessarily predict. And so being able to test for those situations, I feel like is a step closer to AI. Um, predictive tests though, or like tests that change themselves. Um, I'm definitely, I, I would love to do more reading on and learn more about. I think that's probably the next big step um, in that yeah. direction. The next frontier that we are broaching, you know. So you mentioned that tool was called Snow Fakery? Correct, yeah. Okay, is that open source or is that internal? It is open source, yeah. Okay, so cool. you can go look at a GitHub. Yeah, um, And it's also part. Yeah. And okay. I would, if you were to install Humo CI, you would actually also be able to use Snow Fakery. Okay. And it's as simple as creating um, a YAML fire, file, if you're familiar. So just a little uh, for those who might not be. A little yeah. bit. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's pretty easy to read file with like you would, you're literally writing things like contact and then you're writing a list of fields of the, of the contact. And then you're saying, this is the first name of contact and what do I want to populate it with? Well, I can use fake first name. And so now, and then, and then I could use a tool like Cumulus CI to say, now use this map that I've created of all this data with all these fake populating fields. And then I want to create 300 of this kind of record in my org. And then it just populates it. And then you go look at your org and now you have 300 contacts with fake first and last names, but they look, but they're close to like what an expected maybe first and last name might be. And same thing with email address, has the at sign, has the .com at the end, things like that. And so you generate with all this fake data and now, now you could be running tests against that. You could, it could be automated, like I said, or maybe you could be even using that in a manual situation where you just wanna manually test your, um, your product. Gotcha. Yeah, I have needs for fake data quite often in the things that I'm putting together. And one of my fallbacks always, and this is getting a little old at this point, is, okay, let's import the Fortune 500 uh, companies and their CEOs as contacts. And so, But beyond that, it's nice to have some real looking data that you can work with and manipulate. You know, it's one yeah. thing to have Betty Bear as one of the lead records that I always see in the free developer mm -hmm. orgs, but to have- Andy Young. <laughs> right, exactly. Yep. Yeah, we all have our uh, Jeff Burlington, Williams, something. You know, that could be a good Twitter <laughs> thread. And you also mentioned, you know, you're open to people reaching out to you if there's thought leaders or people that have information that 
I know you would be interested in. So I'll be sure and link to your LinkedIn profile and your Twitter profile. And I'll probably be corresponding with you as well for, I'll be looking for these different tools that you've mentioned and podcasts. And if there's anything else that you come to, that comes to mind. One thing that came to mind for me though was, I know that Salesforce has been really good at having their ideas board out there that people can submit ideas and then we vote that up or whatever. And then once they reach a certain threshold, those make their way into a release eventually, some sooner than others. On the .org side and from a quality perspective, do you play much of a role in helping to determine what the impact of those proposed ideas that are coming from the masses, what that might have in your instance or in your hemisphere? Yeah, so we we do use the ideas board at salesforce.org as well. So those ideas get funneled through. And yeah, I would say I'm definitely not the person with the largest impact by any means. I think especially our support, our customer-centric engineers in particular, CCE um, is what they're called. They're kind of like the highest tier of support, um, but they do a lot, especially if it's a bug, they might be looking at those ideas and bringing it to our attention. And they're also the ones typically directly interfacing with customers the most. Um, and then we'll work with them when we kind of bring that in. Um, something I like about salesforce.org, Salesforce as a whole, and especially.org is just the general team culture of listening to other, others' feedback and trying to figure out really what is best for clients, not just because it's the easiest to fix or because it's the next shiniest thing to build that's the most fun to build, but really getting a better sense of what is causing the most pain or what are the best areas for improvement that we could make a maybe a simple change, one that is both digestible, that is not so much of a change that it requires somebody to have to do a lot of learning, if at all possible, um, but also is going to have like the large amount of impact on them and for in the nonprofit and education space on their end users, which are often the people using their programs or services or the students using them. And so thinking about everything through that mindset and that frame um, is what we try to do as a whole. Um, the, the individuals that are you'll usually hear about that are gonna be, I'd say usually the decision makers on new features and things like that are gonna be the PMs, the product managers on our teams. Um, and they're, they're out there in the space in the community a lot. Um, I know some will talk at different community groups um, often they'll be on Twitter answering questions or they'll be on Chatter and the Trailblazer community talking and answering questions there. And so they're, they're usually one of the best ones to hit up if you, if you have a thought or a question um, right. because they're going to know where it is on the roadmap and how to bring that in. And what I see a lot of times is they're kind of filing that information in their mind. If they can address it right away, that's great. But a lot of times they'll, I'll be in a meeting on our, on our team, on the product that we're developing. And they'll, they'll actually remember, oh, I was chatting with somebody like three or four months ago and they said that would be a great, like that would be a nice to have feature. So, and this seems related to what we're doing now. So like, let's, let's improve that and add this in. Um, and so kind of getting that within using the idea board, but also, you know, maybe tweeting them if they have that or, you know, having a small conversation with them online, I think is another good way to interface and get some of those ideas out there. Okay, excellent. A couple more questions for you. I know we've been going sure. for a while here, but you've been a great interview and uh, great um, answers. And I'm learning a lot, you know, and I really appreciate your time. 
One is we obviously, the world is different now and there's a lot more remote work and Salesforce is kind of pushing forward with, you know, working from anywhere. And really that's in Salesforce's DNA. They were born in the cloud, you know, and, and could enable remote work from, you know, the inception. But are you seeing because there's more of a remote workforce, any impacts on the actual platform that you are doing the quality engineering on as far as where you see this heading? Because I know that things won't necessarily perhaps ever get back to how they were before. I think that there will be more and more acceptance of remote work. Is there some sort of underlying changes or not upheaval, but a paradigm shift from the platform perspective to accommodate that? And if so, what might that be or look like looking ahead? Yeah, that's a great question. <laughs> Maybe I've been saying that every time, but these are really good questions. Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I hear that, my first thought, at least from the platform is definitely looking at some of our tools like work.com. Maybe you've seen a little bit about that, but that effectively I know is our response to the state of the world as it is now and going back to work and what that all looks like and the tools that are being built there. It's a, a suite of tools. And um, I have some friends on that team that I know are building some really cool things. I um, highly recommend. Um, but in terms of what it looks like for maybe some of our products, um, like a really maybe practical example that I can think of, the product I work on now is called uh, Salesforce Advisor Link. And so it's an education product for advisors that are scheduling time with students at their university or at the community college. Um, and it's also even going into the K through 12 space as well. The Student Success Hub is what that product is called. Um, but yeah, in that space, as you can imagine, it, scheduling appointments is very different. And I actually just switched over to the team, so I can't take credit, any credit for this, but I know the team had just completed a feature um, for switching so that appointments could now be virtual appointments. And so that was like a quick change. I know some things on the roadmap had to change pretty quickly because of COVID. And so making a pivot like that is just like one way that a product and a team might kind of switch things up now that we're in a more remote world. We had to like accommodate for how are people actually using our product and how are they interacting with our product in a way that actually makes sense to them. They're not necessarily doing in-person appointments. They might be doing it more virtually. And so that's like a really practical, from a day-to-day and -day how we're working, something I think that's pretty cool about .org, uh, Salesforce.org is that we've actually been remote for the most part since way before COVID. Um, and so as, at least as far back as I can remember working with .org, even before I was here, I know that it's been a fully remote team. And so a lot of ways just as a department, um, as a set of clouds, we were positioned and able to make this transition well. And so I think we were able to at least think about what was it gonna be like for users to be able to like use our products in a way that represents the way that we use it as in our day-to-day -day function. Um, I'll say from a, my own personal thoughts on like what that looks like is using tools like Trailhead a lot more. Like I'm so glad that Trailhead existed as a product. I mean, I, I loved it from before we were completely remote and now it's, it's, it's so much more useful. I mean, it was already useful and it's even so much more useful um, to get people to skill up and reskill especially as careers change and as their needs change. I know for 
my roommate actually just right next door to me, he's actually, he's used your, your materials oh, cool. and he got his um, admin certification. His name's Rodney Zhu, hire him <laughs> You're out there. Um, but yeah, he, like, I just see him and he's been in supply chain management and this just became like a day-to-day -day conversation with us of like, how is supply chain changing for him? And him asking me, you know, what skills can I gain that is going to help me be better at my job and help me be more marketable in the general community. And so I think for him hearing about like what Salesforce is and me being able to, ex to explain, hey, if you use Trailhead, I think there was some like initial fear of how am I gonna skill up during this time? Well, there's these free tools that are out there, go out there and use them. You can maybe kind of try to follow my career path a little bit if you want to go into quality engineering, you could try to take what you're already doing in supply chain management and just elevate that. Maybe bring it to your company, um, maybe bring maybe work on a new product. Like if you see there's like a, a gap, maybe you want to create a new tool in Salesforce that does supply chain management. Just thinking about like, there's all these opportunities and possibilities out there rather than just things cut off. I mean, I know that has happened, but maybe trying to reframe it as what can we gain using the tools that we already have? Um, yeah, I think Trailhead and that kind of shifting career path in that manner and maybe and using your materials to get those certifications, things like that. I think that's that's what I recommend to most friends that have been through this transition is look at it as an opportunity to reskill and use that material. Great advice. So one final question for you, okay? That TV sure. screen over your shoulders fascinating to me because it's scrolling through all these different images and slides. I think that's brilliant. You're giving me an idea. It's like, I need to switch out my canvas for something a little more interactive, you know? So how did you set that up? And uh, what's the what's the thought behind that? Because I love your background, the lights. You got a great look there. I've got the cheap curtain here. I need to up my game, basically. So tell me about your setup there. Yeah. What did you do for that? Yeah, I mean, in general, this is all, you could say, like pandemic inspired. In that, <laughs> you know, I realized I was going to be on you know, on camera a lot more. And it's like, I just wanted to make the space behind me more interesting and fun. And so, yeah, a lot of it, a lot of what you're seeing, at least with the lights, they're just neon lights or they're fake neon lights. They're LED lights that look like neon lights. They're bendable. And so it was a fun little project to just bend them. I think they're actually kids lights on Amazon that are probably like $10, $20. So a, a simple way to like, to kind of like spice things up in the room. But yeah, in terms of the, what you're seeing behind me, this is actually an iPad. Um, oh, wow. And so, yeah, it's, it's an iPad that I use. I use it for watching videos or TV, but I, I realize I'm like, oh, well, during the day when I'm at work, I'm probably not using it as much. I'm on my computer. So it can kind of become just another screen. And I was like, why don't I put everything that I like just in a rotation, like showing on the iPad so people can ask me about it or we can have conversations. And so right now it's actually Cheerios. I love just plain <laughs> Cheerios. <laughs> Um, oh, you've probably man. seen things like a pride flag, uh, right. identify as gay and Salesforce, Salesforce.org and just other things in my life. And so it's just a keynote presentation that I, I found out you can just put on rotate and I just turn it on every morning. And well, at least when I'm on camera and so I can have these conversations that, right. and then you can see my, uh, mask 
my mini mask wall right here mask collection yeah another pandemic inspired right exactly yeah if we would have fast forwarded from a couple of years ago to today you would have been like what is all that about you know you had no idea so the call to action today for those that are watching or listening in the future is to reach out to julian and mention one (laughs) of the things that they saw during the video on his screen there and ask him about it and reach out so Julian, any other final parting words of wisdom? I've really enjoyed our talk today. Any thoughts? Yeah, yeah, I've I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. And I mean, if there's one thing can take away, and I always encourage others, like like I was saying, my roommate earlier is really looking at Salesforce and all these career paths as just a set of opportunities and things that can be gained and specialized in and kind of take it on for yourself for your own career path. And for me, what that eventually looked like was quality engineering. And I would highly recommend, I'd highly recommend it as a way to get into the ecosystem, especially for those who are maybe at the verge, maybe they're actually already in the ecosystem and they're admins and they're kind of thinking about development. I think quality engineers, I've seen a lot of postings for Salesforce quality engineers, but it's extremely rare. I've actually had recruiters reach out to me and say, how do I find Salesforce specific quality engineers? Those with Salesforce skill sets, but are thinking about testing. And I actually recommend, hey, actually don't necessarily think about just quality engineers, think about reaching out to Salesforce admins because what they're probably doing is testing already. You're, you're already testing your software before you're giving it out to your end users. And so you already have those skill sets. And so really just thinking about, if, if especially if you're in a place where it's like, I'm trying to break into the ecosystem. I'm trying to make that next big step. Thinking about what is some specialty that you do, you do really well and you like to do, whether it's testing, whether it's maybe marketing or a little bit of scripting on the side, whatever it is, that all is actually really interesting to people out there. And is there's some job that needs that. It's just a matter of how can you present yourself in that? How can you put it out there? And so I'm happy to yeah talk about my background, but I'm also, um, I'd say even more excited to talk about like career paths and, and what it takes to maybe make that pivot and what to put on your LinkedIn to get people to reach out to you. Um, I just have, I think that's really what it takes to take the next step is not so much just what are those skills, it's what can I say about myself in a certain way and what can I specialize in, what can I, or what am I already specializing and put out there that it'll that is being looked for and needed in the, in the ecosystem, because it's definitely, it's definitely needed. (laughs) I get hit up all the time on that. Gotcha. Excellent advice. All right. So Julian Joseph, thank you so much. I enjoyed it and uh, keep in touch and uh, look forward to what you do next. So if you could please do this new podcaster a solid, please share this podcast with others. I also want to hear your voice. Please do reach out to me. I want to include the voices of my listeners. If you have any questions, leave that in a voice message. You may be featured in a future episode. And please subscribe, share, spread the word about you relevant. And together we'll help you and others find relevance in the economy of now. Thanks. Thanks.